Hey guys, Ken and Mark here. Uh, we're talking this week about Yoga 2.0. Yeah, so Yoga 2.0 is related to what we were talking about last time, which was the what the F is yoga talk we had. Um, we're looking at how yoga has evolved, inevitably, <laughs> or devolved in some ways. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and how it is in the West now. And we're also looking at um, what is yoga for us and what is beyond yoga. Um, so for me and Kane, and you can speak for yourself in a second, uh, we've studied a lot of different practices, um, a lot of yoga-related topics. A lot of what we do encompasses yoga and also practices that uh, maybe extend beyond yoga in some extent. And then there's also the discussion of as we're adapting and evolving yoga in the modern day, what does that look like? What does this new version of yoga that we practice and that we teach look like, feel like? Um, and so we wanted to talk a little bit about that and also go, go beyond just the scope of yoga because what me and Kane do in some senses extend a little bit beyond what might be conventionally considered yoga. Um, so we wanted to get into that and how that all relates and how it's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. So... I think that like we were we were joking around before the recording this idea of it's like a software update mm -hmm. and how with software updates you have the original thing that was created that has some sort of function right. and then as the times change the software gets updated to include new things it didn't have and and fix bugs that mm -hmm. weren't working and so because circumstances are always changing then programs have to constantly change. Right. Okay, so there's that analogy that we're, we're running with. Of course, humans are way more complex than any kind of digital mm -hmm. creation, and yoga is is a vast you know tradition that has lived way longer than the digital era. Right. So there's a lot more factors. Mm -hmm. But I think the analogy works in the sense that that the a lot of the circumstances are similar in terms of the way human beings live. I mean, we all breathe, we all digest, we all walk on the earth. Mm -hmm. So the basic set of conditions we find ourselves in are, you know, basically the same as they were five thousand years ago in in India or Tibet or Nepal or China. But but a lot of things aren't the same. A lot of things are very different. Right. And if we follow the development of yoga through history as, as well as we could tell the story, we've seen that yoga has changed a lot throughout history to, to adapt to the, to the times. And well, we live in exceptional times, so we, we need, uh, we need an update mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. how to use yoga. And, right. And I think, you know, one of the things that both of us have been doing and, and a lot of that happening, you know, simultaneously without having talked, but more mm -hmm. recently, mm -hmm. as we've been talking, we realize that, that you and I have come to really similar conclusions in terms of a lot of different applications within the yoga system mm -hmm. in terms of some things that work, some things that don't seem to work as well. And we've integrated and innovative to try to bring the maximum effect right. within a class or within a workshop for the people who are attending. And that has expanded beyond uh, the scope of what traditionally would fall under the umbrella of traditional yoga from the Indian subcontinent. Right. And so, right. and so, you know, what, what, what is yoga if it's to constantly evolve to benefit mm -hmm. the people of the, of the era? Mm -hmm. um, so what are some, you know, some well, things that you've seen? Do you, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about like how yoga has actually evolved and or changed over the, cause that, I mean, maybe laying some historical context for the fact that yoga is quite adaptable maybe, or it has been changing for a long time, could be yeah, relevant well, to. I mean, gosh, we could do a whole yeah, maybe like episodes you know, about the history, but just a condensed kind of or something. quick history. <laughs> I mean, just a couple of examples I think would suffice. Yeah. Well, so I think one of the big differences is a lot of, a lot of the yoga systems that have, have, been passed down through the lineage transmission in India were often, um, they were being taught to students who were quite 
mobile. They were often, you know, agricultural communities. So people mm-hmm. use their bodies more often if they were teaching the yoga to householders. Um, and then the completely kind of separate circumstance would be the teaching and transmission of yoga practices to people who didn't work within society. They were renunciates. Mm-hmm. So I have kind of these two different yeah. applications where one, if, if yoga was being practiced and um, the lineage was being passed on for people who were householders, those people were very active with their body. Right. And they used, they used their body a lot more than we use our eyes and our brain in the sense of we all are engaging with much more reading and much more use of, of the frontal aspect of our sense mm-hmm. organs mm-hmm. than probably those people you know, did. They walked barefoot, mm-hmm. they worked with the earth. And so we could assume that their cultural context, we could say, was much more grounding mm-hmm. and much more somatic than the average person living in the post-industrial world. Mm-hmm. It's much more intellectual. Right. And we move our bodies less and we rarely walk barefoot most mm-hmm. as a society. Sure. So just using a few examples like that, mm-hmm. if we were to look at the way yoga technology would be applied for a person who who needs to, for example, move energy up and get things moving upward in their body to create a sense of uplift and create a sense of rising kind of warmth to stimulate the brain. Um, a lot of the early yoga techniques had that, um, had that in mind, that they were trying to get energy right. to move up. Right. If you take a snapshot of modern people, most modern people, we all started reading a lot when we were really young kids. You know, We had to study mm-hmm. and take tests, and so we've used our eyes and our brains yeah. A lot more. So energy tends to move up very easily. Naturally. Yeah. And energy doesn't move down as so easily, easily yeah. for modern people. So mm-hmm. I think this is one, you know, thing that we I know I've seen yoga students struggle with a lot in terms mm-hmm. of historically we're in different we're almost like upside down compared to where the, you know, right. early yogic students were. Right. Another one is that over the development of most of yoga's history with just within India, there was much more of a cohesive cosmology. Mm-hmm. Whether, if we want to say that most of yoga grew up within a Hindu context, we could say that, but we know that there's so many different versions of how localism and animism and Hinduism all kind of combine to create local traditions. So there's as many different versions of Hinduism as there are regions in India. So I'm not saying that there's a homogeneity there, but in, in a sense, they all shared a common cultural cosmology of, of a universe made of energy, of relating to all the natural elements as deities, and thinking in these terms. Whereas the context we have now is primarily influenced by science and a more mechanistic, materialistic, and mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. kind of cosmology. So we find mm-hmm. ourselves with different basic beliefs and different basic assumptions. And again, the yoga was was developed early on with that in mind, it was developed within that milieu. So, of course, it takes into consideration the basic way that people are. Um, and a basic, simple thing, a basic sensitivity to the notion that elements mm-hmm. are are sacred and that everything is a current of energy. Mm-hmm. And therefore, for example, Hatio develops with, with that as its basic, almost assumption. Right. Whereas here, we can't we can't make that assumption that our culture would share among a mm-hmm. large group of people the mm-hmm. idea that the body is basically frequency. Unless people have studied something outside of the conventional right. Western model, right. they wouldn't have come to that kind yeah. of conclusion. And that, I mean, that's something I think, that's a, that's a place where I think both of you, both of us have kind of deviated maybe from our studies, like of a traditional context, because we really, I think, spent time studying certain disciplines that emphasize or develop that particular perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like an energetic or, or, or frequency perspective of the body-mind mm-hmm. is something that, in a sense, as Westerners, we have to cultivate. Mm-hmm. We actually have to spend time studying it and looking for it. And some of us spontaneously have it, you know, from our background or from certain mind-altering experiences that we might have had. But for most of us, it has to be something that's kind of trained or introduced gradually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest, Mm -hmm. that in and of itself, in my experience with teaching, determines how the different techniques might be applied and then what the effect is. Right. So if we just take a hand, let's say we take 10 asanas and we take 10 breathing exercises, pranayama, 
practices from traditional yogic lineages mm -hmm. and we just import them into 2016 and you know into our culture and we just try to apply them the same way they've always been applied we have to ask ourselves what are the results what what actually happens when people do those things mm -hmm. and what i've seen is you don't get as many positive results as you would hope right and part of the reason why is contextual and cultural right so what is I mean, that con cultural context you know social cultural context like you said earlier, it creates very specific kinds of energetic dispositions. Right. So the yogic practices that were developed in another era that was meant to address a certain imbalance or weakness might not be relevant in our culture in the same way. Right. Like the principles can still apply. Yeah. Right. And the concepts still are, apply, but we might have to look a little closer to see is it actually, for example, if the energy is rising so much, do we need to actually bring it down and find more of a balance? Where in the past, there was so, so much... Um, engagement in the physical realm from right. doing Downward, tasks rooting yeah. kind of thing. that we people needed to really encourage the energy to rise to the higher centers to to develop those faculties yeah i think that's mm -hmm. i think that's exactly right i mean so in a sense it's like the the foundational developments and discoveries of all of the yogic traditions i, I think are timeless Mm -hmm. But but the sensibility of how to apply them right. needs to be based in observation of the results. Yeah, and that's where I think we have a great advantage because we've all been schooled in the scientific model. Anybody who's gone through, you know, mm -hmm. high school education, they've they know something about the scientific way of looking at things, and it's built into our society. But what what I've seen in the yoga world is that often people kind of outsource that faculty to the tradition right, and right. think that point. if they just repeat the old ways or just they just do yeah. Surya Namaskar A, you know, 108 <laughs> times that they're going to get the, the, you know, the result that's written in the right. Pradipika or something. Right, right. And it often doesn't work that way. So I think Yoga 2.0, for us to even talk about that, in a sense, we have to carry on the aspect of the yogic tradition, which is, has always spoke about direct experience and doing something and checking the result mm -hmm. and then from that that's your access point you know and right. if we we're to intersect some of the religious cosmology to it it's like the deity of direct experience mm -hmm. which is kind of like a, a notion that doesn't really exist in our culture right mm -hmm. that your direct sensate experience is where you're touching the divine right and a lot of yogic traditions say that's Shakti herself, right? That's the goddess. Mm -hmm. Your direct felt experience is the right. is the divine, right. and it's showing you how to do the yoga. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. that's built into the yoga tradition, it's almost like the updates are built in mm -hmm. if we really use the system. Right. But it's rarely it's rarely applied, applied that way. way. Yeah, I think you really hit a poignant point when you said there is a tendency, even though as scientific minded we are and trained we are, there is a tendency to sort of give away our power maybe mm. um, to mystical traditions because we don't understand them. And there's some value in that in terms of approaching something with an open mind. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, we do need to be reflective. We do need to look at our experience and saying, okay, what is this thing that we're doing here? What's the effect? What's the goal? Like last time we talked about um, method and goal, right? And, and the view mm -hmm. and how that's important because otherwise what are we doing what are we engaging in where are we trying to get to really right and it becomes a little bit foggy and we can get kind of lost into tangents we can start applying techniques that might actually not be effective or relevant for us so it's really important to come back to our experience and reflect yeah absolutely i think um i think it's scary as a yoga teacher or as a teacher of any kind of wisdom tradition when you're teaching to give in a sense to give the power to the students mm -hmm. and to not and to not hold it yourself right and, and i see that as you know as one of the challenges uh -huh. that all that leaders in every field yeah. struggle with you know yeah. because when you're there and you're and you're directing and you're leading a group of people or you're leading right. an experience there is that there's that sense of, of relatedness and the relationship between students and teacher is one of trust. And, and it's like the teacher is holding the rudder in a sense, right. and the collective is moving the energy, you know, in a direction yeah. by, by their shared participation. Right. 
And it's easy for students to not pay attention to their direct experience and right. only pay attention to the direction right. of the teacher. Yeah. It's easy for the teacher to, get, to pay attention yeah. to their own, to the, to the feeling that's, that's mm -hmm. quite exhilarating yeah. of leading and right. not be really embodied with the students. Right. So there's a whole power dynamic thing going on there too, which totally. is I think what you're talking about where, yeah. you know, for not conscious as teachers, it's really easy to get drunk off the power and the authority of being a teacher and wanting to hold on to that and not allowing students to discover their own internal authority through their direct experience, right? I would love to have a whole episode about that. <laughs> Seriously, that's yeah. a really yeah. important topic for us to discuss because, mm -hmm. I mean, a moment's tangent, excuse me, but... It's okay, it's not a tangent. I think, yeah, the we don't have a structure in our culture for how that works. And the old systems mm -hmm. were based in a a model that doesn't work for Westerners, yeah, which is sort of an absolute trust in the teacher. Right. And so a certain amount of, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we need to update that whole yeah, teacher-student relationship. Yeah, like necessary update in the modern day. Yeah, right? and, and but yet there's something really powerful for having a model where, where there is a heart connection and the student doesn't just do whatever they want. Right. And, and sort of... Um, think that they're absolutely and completely independent. Yeah, it's another extreme. Yeah, it's yeah. another extreme. And, and we mm -hmm. aren't that way. We, we do depend on each other. Yeah. And a good teacher yeah. can guide us to a place we would never find on our own. So surrender is important, right. but not absolute surrender of a person's autonomy. Mm -hmm. So it'd be really fun to, to look at that. I mean, that's something in terms of, if we're talking about just updating yoga in general, right. the way it's transmitted and the way it's taught certainly needs to... To get an update because you know mm -hmm. you and I have have seen a lot of struggle with that in mm -hmm. in our years of teaching just oh, yeah, how yeah. students relate to you some students just sort of give up all their power to yeah. you and you try to like yeah. I'm not your savior right. you have to do the practice I can't zap you with Shakti and yeah. you're gonna get yeah. well or something it doesn't work that way right and other students who just fight you yeah and they don't want to listen to anything right, right and then, right. then everything in between you know yeah no it's true I, I, yeah i want to keep talking about that a little bit because i think i want to share my experiences about it too to some extent which is i've seen the complete abuse of power of by teachers which was for me very painful to watch because a lot of students because they don't understand yoga and they're so um sort of mystified by it, they enter the practice and i think a lot of people come to it for the purpose of healing uh to find refuge from their pain or their life and sometimes not even knowing it, you know, and because it's just what it imparts, I think, to some extent when you engage in a relationship with your body and breath, it's really powerful. So to me, the abuse of power by a teacher, the abuse of that trust and the breach of that trust is a really serious, um, um, what do you call it? Transgression, mm. you know, and I take that really seriously. Mm -hmm. And also on the end of the student, when we don't come in with a certain level of discrimination, it can become problematic and feed into that abuse of power by the teacher. Um, it's, it's been so prevalent actually in yoga recently, right? With all yeah. the falling of the gurus in the last 20 years, it's right. just like a constant thing. And simultaneously, I like, that, I like that you're talking about the opposite end of the spectrum where teacher, students fight the teacher. Because I've been in many circumstances too, teaching where you can feel there's that tension between the student and, and they have a really hard time just taking in the practices and being open and trying things and I mean I, I experienced that myself mm. and I think part of that comes from our own pain and trauma you know of being taken advantage of or betrayed or abused yeah which makes it really difficult to trust right and I think it's kind of a cultural issue maybe that we have and that's why we keep having this sort of guru experience you know abuse experience in our culture too yeah but, yeah yeah, totally. I think you hit it. There's, there's like a cultural. We we replay some mm -hmm. sort of cultural narrative th yeah. through that, right? It's yeah. like the giving up of power, and then having to learn how to take take back personal power by having that personal power trampled on somehow. Right. And I mean, it's the story of religious tradition, religious mm -hmm. and political, you know, factions for as back as if we can trace history. That's yeah. happened. But I think. If we think about that whole phenomenon as like a yogic phenomenon, right. then I have to think, what is there to learn from that? How can we learn and grow from that? And mm -hmm. it's always about some sort of balance of trust and autonomy. Right. You know, like I have to have some amount of trust just to have a conversation with you. I can't just mm -hmm. 
think I know everything or we don't have a conversation or, you know, right. so there's like a certain amount of letting go just to connect with each other. Yeah. And this is relatively, you know, non-confrontational, mm-hmm. but to study something that's going to shake you at your core, <laughs> it's really confrontational, right? For our conditioning. Right. And so in a sense, the yoga teacher, the spiritual teacher represents the, the possibility of a kind of catastrophe within ourselves right. that breaks down something that we want to change but it it's something we've been standing on for for maybe our whole life yeah and when it starts to crumble often what happens is student grasps at the teacher right instead of grasping at their own experience and finding their own ground within themselves yeah and often when the student starts crumbling a little bit the teacher unknowingly or maybe sometimes knowingly i would like to think that often it's not conscious it's just the teacher's power trip they start manipulating the student when the student isn't strong on their center because it feels good to have that and and again i think this is just this always exists in society it could happen Mm -hmm. at a corporation it could happen at a church it could happen at the local yoga studio but it speaks to our cultural need to mature right and to find a place where you know if you're going to teach me about something i don't know about i have to be an empty cup Right. And in that space, you're the teacher, I'm the student. It doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about mm-hmm. our ultimate worth. Yeah. And yeah. I think this is where, you know, the the transmission of yoga teachings can can update to the modern mm-hmm. era where we are mm-hmm. all teachers and students simultaneously. Right. But in the old tradition, a guru was a guru. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right. When they're your teacher, you treat them as the guru even if you know way more than them about yeah. ten other things. Yeah. And that kind of totalitarian <laughs> positioning, it doesn't mm-hmm. work in the modern era. Yeah. But we didn't have another model for it. So right. We've been, we've been floundering for like, yeah. for at least for the last hundred years. Right. On how yoga teachings can be transmitted in a healthy way. That's true. Here. I, I mean, I like what you said in terms of students, which I think is something for students to become more self-reflective of is their own tendency to want to give the power away. Mm -hmm. It's because we're seeking something to save us, right? Absolutely. Is something to look at too and just to be careful of in our own practice. And for teachers to also be mindful of redirecting the students back to themselves when they notice that. Right. And then on the teacher's end, I think it's really important for us to have a certain level of renunciation, right? It's like if... As teachers, all we're obsessed with is the fulfillment of our own personal agendas and, you know, desires. The rush of teaching. Yeah, especially on the lower level of like, you know, and I'm not saying lower like bad. I'm just saying like just human desires like sexuality, um, attention and power and things like that. Mm -hmm. We can become very blind to how we're actually manipulating the dynamic between the student to our personal advantage, quote unquote, on that level. And it could be very detrimental to the student and also to ourselves as teachers in the long term when we're just obsessed with our personal fulfillment. So it requires that we become discerning and self-reflective again and see, okay, well, I'm I'm interacting with a student. Do I have desire for the student, their attention, what they can give me financially or sexually? And am I taking advantage of the student? You know, am I just taking what I want and not really giving them what they need? Mm -hmm. And or am I abusing this dynamic? And, you know, playing with the power unconsciously. And I think it's important for teachers to become more conscious of that and have some renunciation and be like, wow, can you really be there for that student and be aware of your own agendas and not try to fulfill that in the context of your relationship to the student? Mm-hmm. You know, like that kind of awareness, I think, needs to be addressed more deeply and, and talked about and encouraged. You know, that kind of awareness needs to be encouraged to be developed. Yeah, that's a huge, huge one. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about the the student side of grasping mm-hmm. like you, you were talking about how this is looking for a savior right i think that's really loaded right issue oh yeah oh god there's so many layers to that right <laughs> i mean i think a lot of us have for example um so this is i think where it's kind of cool to reach beyond yogic models a little bit i'm mm-hmm. um, not that it's not included in yogic models if you look for it but like what we understand currently about um attachment theory right and so attachment theory is a certain branch of psychology and therapy um, that's been a little bit more on the um, fringe side, I think, until mm-hmm. recently. And it's sort of the understanding of how human beings are designed to form healthy 
bonding and attachment with their social environment, with their parents. And so early on in childhood, when we don't receive the kind of attachment or connection that we really needed to develop in a healthy way, and I really believe that biologically and neurologically, we're just sort of determined, like designed to seek that connection. It's just part of the survival mechanisms that's actually built into the human uh, genetics, I think. Mm-hmm. And so when we don't get that bonding or connection that we need and doesn't get fulfilled, there's this sort of chronic sense of deficiency and lack of development that we're experiencing on a certain level by psyche. And later on, it could be you know 20 years later, 30 years later, you know whenever, 40, 50 years later, we're still looking for that in our environment, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And so when you walk into a really intense power dynamic like a teacher-student relationship in a, in a spiritual setting or you know, a yoga setting or even in a psychological setting, we can start to create this projection of the parent or the mother or the father onto the teacher. And unconsciously, we're starting to play out that whole, you know, getting what we needed from them type of dynamic, which is a very precarious, uh, I think, relationship. Right. Know, it needs to be treaded very consciously and very careful. So we're unconsciously trying to get this thing that we didn't get from our parents, from our male or female yoga teacher, which might be attention and love and tenderness and care and bonding, right? Right. So, and as we enter the relationship like that, if both of the students and the teachers aren't conscious of it, it could turn into a sexual relationship. It could turn into a very intimate relationship really quickly. And very easily we can start to replay a lot of the wounding patterns from our early development and it could be very catastrophic and, and, and painful, I think, um, for the student and for the teacher. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think so from a from a spiritual perspective or even the perspective of how religion has functioned mm-hmm. over time, both within the context of the development of yoga in, in the subcontinent and just in the wider context of, you know, Western spiritual development, there's also the philosophical aspect of that which which does place, you know, the big daddy in the sky mm-hmm, kind right. of thing. And right. I think very similar to attachment theory in the sense that it could unconsciously play out that we're, we're constantly seeking <clears throat> the type of support, security, you know, right. sensation right. in our body yeah. that we didn't get in childhood. Right. We're looking for that spiritually when we don't, consciously investigate what it is that um, that is our direct relationship to the great unknowable or the great spirit itself if we in a sense if we just take at face value the concepts that have been most popularly propagated around spirituality which they tend to be that there's something transcendent, which is much bigger than you and I, mm-hmm. that is the big daddy or big mommy in the sky. <laughs> right. Right. Or, or we could personify that and say that that's this particular deity or that's this particular um, mm-hmm. saint. Mm-hmm. And we could project upon that conceptual person or that conceptual being right. that they're responsible for saving us. Right. Right. For quote unquote saving our soul mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or our transcendence. And we, we see that in Hindu-inspired yoga traditions. We see that in Buddhism. We see that in, you know, in Taoism. You know, in Buddhism, it's sort of like the, the mistake of thinking that the Buddha is going to somehow save you and give right. you enlightenment or thinking yeah. that there is any such thing as Buddha outside of your own original nature. And in the mm-hmm. yoga tradition, it's mm-hmm. it's thinking that the guru is going to give you Shaktipat and, and open all your chakras and give you a glimpse Complete. of enlightenment. Yeah. Or thinking that if you just chant Mahamritin Jaya Mantra enough times that, mm-hmm. that Shiva will somehow, you know, wipe the slate of your yeah. karma clean, that you don't actually need to do anything yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you said the sort of mm-hmm. savior thing, <coughs> I immediately thought about the spiritual appl- uh, application of that, which mm-hmm. I think is just an extension of the very human, mm-hmm. very emotional, very body-centered feeling that human beings have, which mm-hmm. is that we need intimacy we need support Mm -hmm. and none of us really survive very long alone we're a tribal you know being and so i think that 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 conversation needs to happen on on many levels Mm -hmm. that we're actually more vulnerable than we often portray ourselves to be yeah and that needs to be included in the conversation of what yoga is if you're going to meditate and you think and you haven't addressed the fact that you 
you're waiting for something to take away your suffering. Mm-hmm. You're you're dwelling in avidya. You're you're actually using yogic technology to 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 strengthen self delusion. Right. Because there's nothing that's going to sort of wipe the slate of your conditioning clean. Mm-hmm. The slate of conditioning gets altered or transformed by creating new patterns and habits by yeah. taking new action. Yeah. And there's certainly a space for surrender and there's certainly a space right. for magic and grace. Yeah. But in my experience of when people do do that, they get they get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. They actually yeah. end up outsourcing their personal discernment right. and their personal power Capacity, to yeah. yeah, and they end up following some yogic tradition or some religion or some guru down a path and then they discover very painfully that they've given up their power. Yeah. And um so yeah, I think both in the interpersonal relationships among yoga teachers and students, and even among different yoga students within the sangha, there's those dynamics, mm-hmm. and within the relationship that each individual has to the spiritual dimension of the practice, however they relate to that, yeah. these conversations need to be, you know, need to be on the forefront. Yeah, because totally. everything else that is employed after that takes on the flavor. If you're grasping because you know, you're looking for mommy, that's going to come out in everything you do. You know, you're trying to do the perfect asana so that you get the reward from the yoga teacher. And it actually just perpetuates the whole phenomenon, which does the opposite of what the yoga actually is trying to do. Right, right. right? Well, what you said a moment ago, avidya, which means um, ignorance, right? And I think, so this is like kind of our second or third point. I don't remember which one, but basically that we need to come to terms with our humanness, with our vulnerabilities, and that component is a little bit, a little bit wonky. You know, when you study traditional systems, it's like it's kind of in there, but it doesn't really explicitly talk about that. I feel like it's something that I've, for at least for myself, had to just kind of discover in my own practice of just sitting and realizing my own feebleness and weakness and vulnerabilities and coming in and encountering that actually and and how that was actually really transformational and healing Mm -hmm. and seeing more and more and more how spiritual practices can be used to mask that yeah and then like you're saying perpetuate the underlying sort of problem or ignorance or pain pattern that we've been running for a really long time just gets exasperates exasperated by that and our spiritual practice can just sort of empower that particular affliction and make it into a more of a monster even right right it's wearing a mala now instead of <laughs> right right we had talked about that last time yeah totally yeah i mean that's mm-hmm. i think that might be the central thrust of the whole notion of of mm-hmm. yoga you know software update is, right. is that the human factor is now like the hottest topic on, on the plate you know yeah and it, like you said the, the reason why it, it doesn't show up often and in just doing the practices or reading through the scripture or whatever is because things are all laid out in terms of the tenets or the axioms. Right. And, and I think that it's, it was implied right. that it all directly Culturally re- relates to, to yeah. your cultural experience and yeah. to your individuated experience. Right. But when we just take it at face value, if you just mm-hmm. read the yoga sutras, you don't see a lot of, of that stuff in there because yeah. It's not on the page, it's in you. Yeah. And I think this is one, a, another really big difference in the way that yoga was was taught before. I mean, there's the whole idea of the, the real you know, teaching that had the, the seed essence for the student to really grasp was never on the page. It was always like whispered in the back room. You know, this mm-hmm. whole idea of, of the teaching comes through the bamboo, right. whispered through the bamboo. To me, what that means is that the page is actually a mirror and the teacher points out the page and points out the axioms or points out the asana mm-hmm. such that the student then sees themselves yeah. and has yeah. direct insight within their experience. Right, right. But that part of the tradition could get lost. Could get yeah. lost, and, I, and I've seen it quite often lost as the West has appropriated yoga. Right. It, we assume either that we've appropriated yoga and we know what it's all about, which is basically exercise science, mm-hmm. or the opposite extreme, which is that the ancients figured it all out and it's all there on the page. It's in the Vedas and it's in the sutras. And all you have to do is see it mm-hmm. and it's there. But neither of those things 
really prove to give the type of insight that the student needs to see their human factor. Right, right. And so if we think about the old teachings as mirrors or stimuli to look at our humanness, right. I think we got something juicy. Nice, I like that. So just using it as sort of fodder for the contemplative practice, the reflective practice, yeah. Uh, and then also, just on the, I think on the line of what you were just saying, I remember this Tibetan Lama who was actually a Westerner, but he had told me once, and he was, I think, in the monastic order for about a good 10 years or eight years or something like that. And he was in the Kagyu lineage in Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And the first, I think, practice they gave him was, okay, stop your mind. You know, and then he was just kind of, you know, bitter, a little talking about, yeah, I spent a couple of years doing that. And, you know, basically it's to help you realize you can't completely do it forever. You know, I might be able to steal it for a little bit, but like ultimately you can't completely stop it. And, and the, they give you that teaching, but like that's all the ultimate realization that I had. And I'm like, huh, right? that's cool. You know, but, be, but if you just try to do that the rest of your life, you know, where does that really get you? Okay, just if I don't think forever, right? And you get stuck <laughs> on that one teaching, right? right? And that's what I think what you're kind of saying is like, okay, there's that teaching, but it's for a larger purpose that might not be so explicit on the page. Exactly. Right? Yeah, it has that, its context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, him as a student in that moment, he didn't know that the Lama who gave him that teaching gave mm-hmm. it to him with the total expectation that he would fail. Right. And to know <laughs> that he would only be complete with that part of the teaching when he admitted his failure. Right. right. But that type of, you know, that's like crazy wisdom, right? Right, that, right, right, that right. is like teaching through paradox, which is what the yoga tradition is so brilliantly Mm-hmm. you know, um, maintained all of, all of these years. Yeah. And I feel like that's a tool that works really, really well. But the literalism and mm-hmm. kind of mechanistic view and linear type of thinking that we've all been enculturated in right. really gets in the way of that type of paradoxical way because students think that they're going to go from A to B and B right. equals awakening. Right. And it never works that way. Right. You know, it's like... Don't tell them. <laughs> Don't let the secrets out of the bag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a sense, if if you tell the student, like, the plan from the beginning, it, it won't work. Hmm. So there's still a level of, like, that the teacher, that there needs to be enough trust in the teacher that the student can, can relax. But there right. also needs to be that skillful means. Mm-hmm. And I think often when, when we kick out yoga teachers by having teacher training every yeah. 30 days or whatever... <laughs> We don't impart people with the understanding of how they're yeah. applying the techniques of yoga in a bigger context and right. for what purpose. Right. And I think a simple introduction of the idea that the students are in a psychologically vulnerable place. I think of every student who walks into a yoga class is looking for something. Mm-hmm. Like you said earlier, they're first and foremost, probably looking for some element of healing, right. some element of personal insight. Mm-hmm. And how delicate that circumstance is, I think is more, it's more delicate than I think any of us realized. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look at the way that the yoga movement was happening, you know, in the 60s or the 70s or even the 80s, it's like, it seems that it's relatively recent in the last like 10 mm-hmm. years that we've mm-hmm. realized how much psychology actually plays into right. the whole yoga experience yeah yeah and how s- somatic right experience and psychological experience are yeah. so interwoven yeah yeah just just even discover that i think you know has been part of the gift of exploring yoga for a lot of people yeah it's just experientially understanding how the mind and body are an emotional body and all that is so intertwined. Mm-hmm. The fact that you do these practices physically and it alters your mental state or your emotional state or opens up latent, you know, um, memories or experiences that are stored in the tissues or the body mind. I mean, that's huge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's really big difference from just mm-hmm. doing physical exercise well, or so just doing psychological therapies. Let me ask you this though. So, just along the line of what we were talking about earlier, I mean, what what have you borrowed from other systems what have you sort of added to your um, arsenal or your practice or mm-hmm. you know that maybe is out of the context of just traditional yoga like how have you updated the practice for yourself yeah so 
the my three main influences are one the yogic tradition from india mm-hmm. the alchemical traditions from chinese taoism mm-hmm. and then buddhist traditions mostly zen and tibetan vajrayana yeah so those are so the the buddhist influence and the Taoist influence into my Indian yoga practice have been the two biggest ways that traditional asana practice and traditional application of yogic technologies have changed for me and my practice. For example, Mm -hmm. the idea of moving energy up and down is just totally prevalent in everything I learned from my Chinese teachers. From Taoists, yeah. Yeah. Thank the Lord for that, because I was about going crazy yeah. in my college years, because I was trying to push everything Everything up. up. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I mean, my first yogic experiences were with Kundalini Yoga. Yeah. And, you know, engage Mula Bandha and put the tongue up and look up and send everything up, 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 up. up. Yeah. And I started getting headaches, and I started getting dizzy, and I started getting loopy, and I started to become the kind of spaced out yoga cadet that I often <laughs> see when I go to a yoga conference, you know, it's mm. like there was no, there was no completing the circuit. Like an integration. Balancing, yeah. yeah. And I looked at the teachers who I was studying that from, they were, they were a lot older than me and they were all very overweight. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, that did, didn't come clear to me until much later. And I realized, oh wow, they were getting their grounding by eating, by overeating. Hmm. to be able to contain the upward movement of energy. And the people who didn't do that, they got kind of fried. Right. Uh, it didn't feel right to me, so I stopped doing yeah. stopped doing it and started just doing Zen right. and just focusing on Hada, yeah, the belly. lower belly, yeah. and breathing from there and rooting in there. And that really changed it for me. Yeah. Um, so I, in a sense, I had early on some, some kind of energetic injuries that forced me to have to integrate some other things. Mm-hmm. As soon as I learned a little bit of Qigong and a little bit of... Taoist kind of philosophy, yeah. I quickly understood that, well, that should be, that should be a part of every yogic experience that I do. Yeah. So I don't get out of balance. Yeah. And I just started integrating it into every asana class, totally rooting down through your feet, sending yeah. the energy down into the belly, stabilization and grounding. I mean, I had the exact same experience, you know, the, when we met in Hawaii, Yeah. <laughs> that's when I was starting to, cause I was studying with some, some Taoists, you know, the Korean Taoists, yeah. Dan people. And then, and I was starting to do Dantian practices, belly practices, and it was finally starting to ground me. Mm. And it was a kind of like a two, three year process from that point on. It took a while, Yeah. but I, my system started to stabilize. I started to feel more emotionally stable, psychologically stable, physically more grounded and calm. And it was huge. Yeah. Yeah. Very important. I think we both, mm-hmm. I mean, when we met in Hawaii, that was 98. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. We were both in that, that place. Yeah. Of, yeah. Of, you of, seemed pretty out there too. Right? Yeah. Expansive we were like and... total cosmonauts. Those <laughs> <laughs> yeah. were fun days too. They were super fun. Yeah. Fasting and standing on our head for an hour at a time. <laughs> right. And eating raw vegetables and fruits and nuts and <laughs> yeah. Good times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, for me, it wasn't sustainable. Like, yeah. like that kind of all up, I couldn't function in society and relationship. It was, right. it had I like renounced as a very pleasurable place to be. Right. But I wasn't, I wasn't integrating my yogic experience mm-hmm. into my everyday life. Mm-hmm. So the Taoist stuff helped me a lot with that. Um, in terms of the understanding of of the mind and understanding of my own biases and how to how to relentlessly observe myself buddhism was just yeah you know totally. the great the great mirror of all mirrors yeah. for me so i traveled to nepal and just got got myself handed to me by yeah. some lamas right well and, i mean are you talking about some theravada buddhism here or tibetan buddhism or um, which particular that branch? was in the vajrayana tradition this is, that was okay. kagyu got lamas but right. you know they're going through the seven points of mind training and going through all the basic tenets of right. of buddhist you know cosmology and philosophy yeah you know, which really just doesn't give you a leg to stand on when you have a lot of assumptions, you know, and I was bringing a lot of assumptions from Kundalini yoga and from, you know, the Hatha Mm -hmm. yoga traditions that I had Mm -hmm. studied with. Mm -hmm. And they didn't, they weren't poo-pooing any of that. They were just saying, look critically. And they gave the the tools to be able to do that. Yeah. Can you share with us like one such practice or approach that maybe some of our listeners can even like reflect on? Yeah. I mean, just simple things like looking at the law of cause and effect or looking at Mm -hmm. the notion of of interdependence yeah. and conditioned arising to, to understand these ideas about how things are interrelated yeah. within your own experience. Right. 
all of a sudden you can't, it doesn't make any sense to do something that would just push energy up right. or do something that would just create flexibility right. or do something that would just try to still the mind right. because immediately then there's built into the psychology the notion that there's also the opposite right and so you know at the end of a month retreat mm -hmm. I, f I found myself not being able to accept myself in extremes yeah and it's it's not that the middle way was sort of taken on as a new dogma it just when someone points out to you how you can very easily fall into extremes and you see yourself by looking at interdependence or looking at the theory of karma or looking at, you know, in Taoist practices, the way yin and yang relate, it then becomes more, it's like I became more sensible somehow. I became more sober. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> before that, I was very idealistic. Right. And after I met, you know, some of my Tibetan teachers, it's yeah. like I couldn't be idealistic anymore mm -hmm. after having seen what they had you know, yeah. taught me to look yeah. at. And I mean, eventually it was like looking at the nature of mind itself. But I mean, that was right. later in the beginning. It was really the dismantling yeah. of some of the yeah. extreme ideas yeah. and practices. Right. So right. I stopped doing a lot of those in really intense pranayama practices and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. extreme asanas after, after that. Yeah. I mean, there's an aspect of yoga that's about like, um, that I was encountering back in the day about like, oh, leaving the body and, attaining this, you know, light body and, you know, yeah. visiting other realms. And there's a sort of fantastical aspect of yogic practice and yogic view. And, and I still find that stuff to be valid. But at the same time, when we get lost in that, again, we can lose that sort of sight of just who we are here as a human being. And it could also become an escape, you know, of that. And yeah. I also hit a certain, at a certain point, my practice hit a point where, I think I was in meditation and it just hit me. I'm like, wow, doing all these concentration practices, doing all these like energetic visualizations, it doesn't, something feels off. I felt it. Hmm. And so I just inquired into it and then it hit me. I'm like, oh my God, like there's just this experience of me and my emotions and my thoughts and my being just here arising on its own and I'm running from it. And so uh, that was a big point of turning point in my practice where I just, I mean, you know, without necessarily someone telling me to do so, I just started to just take my concentration and my presence that I've cultivated up to that point using these other practices to just simply sit with my experience and observe it. Like, oh, I'm having this thought or having this feeling. Where's that coming from? Oh, I'm having this somatic experience. What happens when I just sit with it and I don't try to pull it away from that thing? And what I noticed from that experience was that it was deeply healing. Like I noticed an integration, a soothing, a relaxing happening, a surrendering happening in my body, my channels and my energy naturally opening versus forcefully visualizing something or chanting a mantra or something like that, which I think still are useful. Mm -hmm. But there's like, again, like you said, the flip side, right? Yeah. So there's a side of implementing new structures and applying you know, new habits in the body-mind through these visualizations and concentration techniques. And there's also the practice of then just simply learning how to experience and sit and encounter our experience as we are and learn how to accept and embrace and love that being that is there. Mm -hmm. You know, the past experiences, the pain, the sorrows, the thoughts, the confusion, the fear. And then the more I sat with it, the more I encountered it with full presence, the more they would sort of self-liberate and unwind. And I would also be more conscious of my relationship with those aspects of my being and how they showed up in my life, which to me, I think led to way more integration uh, in my personal life, you know, in terms of how spirituality, mindfulness, all these things affected my personal relationships, how it affected how I was in the world, you know, how I was in relationship to myself. I feel like all those things were impacted way more positively when I balanced these sort of transcendental or concentration or, or visualization practices with the simple act of just becoming present with my, my naked experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think that, y yeah, you arrived at that place sort of by, I think the way that often practitioners in the past did too, it's like in a sense, there's a giving up, there's a moment of, of just sort of like stopping mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it happened for me similarly in the sense of I was in India, I was chanting mantra and doing a visualization and it just stopped 
mm-hmm. by itself and I mm-hmm. couldn't actually do it. It's like somebody pushed the brakes. And after I realized I couldn't actually do it anymore, the whole foundation fell away of even knowing what it was for and why I was doing it. And I was just left there with my utter humanness and had the same type of recognition that, wow, I've been actually running from something that's been uncomfortable. And and no one had taught that being with direct experience in its unmodified you know, immediacy mm-hmm. before I had encountered my Buddhist teachers. Mm-hmm. I didn't encounter that in, in all of my yogic, mm. you know, wanderings. Um, it was very much about whatever it is right now, you're going to transform it, you're going to burn it, you're going to light it up, you're going to, you know, open it up. And that was kind of like the starting place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, whether whether it's through psychology that, we arrive at that or through, yeah. you know, Buddhism or just through relationship or yeah. whatever influence. This has a big place to play in the application of yogic technology now right. that the starting point, because, you know, in my 20s, I was somewhat of a renunciate. I didn't have mm-hmm. a, you know, ongoing romantic relationship. I was really on a yogic path. I, mm-hmm. for a good portion of that, I was celibate. I was just yeah. in in it. I was basically yeah. living like, you know, a sadhu kind of yogi. Mm-hmm. And that was great. It was amazing. But for me to then integrate into earning money and having relationships, I needed to change a lot of things. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, the aspects of the human emotional content, if those weren't a part of the practice, living as a functional person within society wasn't really possible. Right. And I didn't actually want to do it. It made mm-hmm. me want to get out of it Mm -hmm. to bypass it right you know and and i knew that wasn't true for me Mm -hmm. um but the yogic stuff as i was using it wasn't working for for what i needed to integrate right right right, so i mean most of the students i see who come to our classes and stuff um that's really the starting place Mm -hmm. you know yeah is what's your current circumstance in your body right now and what's it feel like right if it didn't change at all could you accept it could you love it Right. And if that ground is established, then these transformative techniques can be applied in a mm-hmm. way that I think is mm-hmm. responsible mm-hmm. and doesn't end up being spiritual bypass. Like yeah, 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 kind of, um, yeah, bypassing or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. So I think it's a really exciting time in terms of the, you know, the yoga update. It's psychology and anatomy, physiology, I think, are informing yoga mm-hmm. as much as the Bhagavad Gita these days. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. And and because s- s- Buddhist psychology has entered the mainstream through the mindfulness movement right. and sort of leaving the religious component of the Buddhist tradition and extracting yeah. some of the yeah. the more rubber meets the road you know, practices Mm -hmm. of the secular application. Right. I think we have a, we have a lot more tools at our disposal to update yoga. Right. And I mean, now I'm using yoga as a really loose term. Sure. Um, But I think that we end up with a more comprehensive Mm -hmm. view of yoga and a more comprehensive toolkit Mm -hmm. for how we can use these technologies to help ourselves and to elevate, you know, Mm -hmm. society to create an era of awakening. Mm. Um, and I, I think that that's actually what a living yoga tradition is. Right. It's dynamic, it's adaptable, it's changing, and and that's okay. I mean, because that brings us brings me back to my thought around, like, tradition, right? And I think that's a really important topic to cover in relationship to what we're talking about because simultaneously there's value in tradition, right, lineages, information that's been passed on and protected and kept for a long time. There's the integrity in that. There's the intelligence of that. And simultaneously, there's that necessity to grow and be dynamic and adapt. And I think this is something we talked about a little bit maybe last time too. Mm -hmm. Of Like, how do you keep what's really valuable and important intact and then also intelligently adapt aspects that need adaptation? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's a really important balance that as yoga curators of the modern day, it's really important for us to reflect on and talk about. And I think that's part of what inspires us to have this conversation, or at least me, to have this conversation with you, is that 
I'm really excited and interested and engaged in this conversation. Um, even though I might not always show up on Facebook threads and get into like these heated <laughs> arguments with people because it's kind of exhausting. Yeah, but um, <laughs> so much time in the day. <laughs> yeah, but um, but I'm really fascinated by those conversations um, because yeah. it's it's really exciting. There's so much interest in these technologies nowadays, and there's so much richness. You know, there's so many tools here that could completely transform our lives. Like we talked about last time, I think yoga and yogic practices and traditions. Um, have a huge implication in social change, you know, potential for inciting an amazing grassroots social change movement. So on that level, I think the more that we refine what we're doing, the more potent the impact can be. And that excites me. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Yeah, it's a really exciting era. And, and everyone in the world has access to yoga nowadays. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's gone global. Right. And... I think we are at a place where there there's truly a possibility of creating an enlightened society hmm. through all of these different traditions. I mean, if we expand the notion of yoga, you know, to the widest possible definition right. to include all traditions that would link us up with our innate intelligence mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and we access those globally in the way that's relevant for the people of, of whatever region or whoever, whoever's accessing it in their yeah. language, in their way, in their context, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but connecting with that universal open quality, that open dimension of the best of our humanity, the best of the human heart yeah. <clears throat> and the best of our spirit. Right. Then I think we really are on the brink of something amazing, but it does need, it needs a refresh. Right. It, you know, it needs a, it needs a, it needs to be really current. Mm -hmm. And I think we've, as a, as a global community, we've been struggling with that a lot in the last couple of decades right. of what is it really yeah. and what really works. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having, you know, these conversations where we hash it mm -hmm. out and bring out mm -hmm. some, mm -hmm. um, some hard things to talk about, I think is, yeah. is one of the ways to stimulate the growth. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's been, that's been happening is like the sort of disillusionment with traditional systems and people abandoning traditional traditional teachings altogether and and just jumping to something completely different, which can take yoga completely out of context to the yeah. point where, you know, sort of the yogic, in the context that we're talking about it, it's hard to find, but like self-development and just inner reflection and transformational tools, you know, that kind of yoga um, gets really, really lost in, in the static and in, uh -huh. in the, in the, in all the noise. The noise yeah. yeah. And so again, like how do we find, that balance of, of maintaining some integrity and understanding of the function of this thing we call yoga while we started to update, right? Because it's like if you're updating a software, you still want it to function the way that it was before, but it's just a better version of it. Right. And it's just like there's less bugs in it, right? And it's more applicable for your new you know, operating system right. or whatever. So it runs more efficiently. But it's not just to throw the baby out with the bathwater completely. And it's just a different software. It's like, wait, I just got a software to look for viruses, but now it plays music? Right. Like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's just like, because I feel like that's what's happening a little bit with yeah. yoga too. And I really want to voice that. Yeah, some and, people are just jumping ship altogether, yeah, throwing, right. throwing it away. Right. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I mean, I had, I think we both had moments in mm -hmm. our, you know, we've shared stories about painful moments with teachers and with lineages and stuff that have been so... Right disillusioning that it kind of like you leave it right but there's something so rich in it that it's like i can't ever let it go right even doesn't yeah. even matter what i call it it's just it's just always going to be there right so that is the that's the potency of of transmission and and of lineage teachings that actually do kind of stand the test of time mm -hmm. and yeah, I think that's that's really where, where we're at. It's to, to be reactive. I know numerous people who listened to the last post were people who, who also uh, would say like recovering yoga teachers. You know? <laughs> and people have some painful experiences, you know, and, mm -hmm. and toss in the towel professionally. And I totally respect that. But like in our hearts as practitioners, right. we don't like we don't throw it all away and just completely go to something different because now you're just you're actually just dabbling in some new thing as a distraction. Mm hmm. Eventually, we have to confront the most painful aspects of our humanness. And yoga is a good enough tool to help us do that if we mm -hmm. frame it right and right. we use it right. right. So, yeah, if we, can, um, if we can collectively 
do that and maintain the best and help it grow into into being ever more relevant i think i think we're doing justice to the tradition of of yoga mm-hmm. uh, but it's going to take all of us to do that i mean the conversation needs to be wide right and um and critical mm-hmm. and i mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. i think we shouldn't be afraid to offend Patanjali or whatever <laughs> in the search for trying to find relevance, right? right I mean, right. well, he would be proud of us, right? I'd yeah, like to think so. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, just what's the intention, right? Like, what's our intention? Are we trying to like fool people or misdirect people or trying to, you know, just do something for our own gain? It's just like no, okay, like, like let's let's critically reflect on this yoga thing, and really study it, and see what's effective, what's not, and be real about it, and you know. That's important. Yeah. Right. It's. I feel like that's really, really important. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Great. Cool. That feels complete. Next time, let's talk about the teacher-student thing. Oh, okay. And we'll see you next time. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. Yoga Uncensored.